And let's just seek the face of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that plan which is mighty, that plan which is wonderful, that plan which has brought us near by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, as we study your word, would you cause these things to be truth to us, be life to us. Help us to remember what it cost to bring us into a right relationship with you. We thank you for your word and pray now that we would see your power. We would see your passion. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 31 here in Luke 18, and again it says, And then he took up the twelve aside, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. An emphatic statement, the original language, it says, This is what we're doing. We're going to Jerusalem. And it's quite possible that by this time that the disciples had gotten a picture a little bit that this was not necessarily going to be a good thing, that it was not necessarily going to be a blessing, uh, but it might appear to them to be something very difficult. And behold, they were going up to Jerusalem, and all things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be Accomplished. Notice it doesn't say might, could possibly, uh, maybe a handful of things. Some of the stuff that the prophets had written will be accomplished. It says that those things, all those things, every last one of those things written by the prophets will be accomplished. So important that you get this, because many people look at their Bibles as if they're just a religious book. Something that man concocted, man wrote, threw together sometime in the Middle Ages, generally speaking, and it was just kind of willy-nilly, whoever said what, they wrote it down and attributed it to those who were uh, present at the time. The Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark. Luke, John, Luke's second gospel, the book of Acts, the pastoral epistles, the letters written by John, written by Peter, the letters to the churches at Ephesus and Colossae, Galatia, the book of Hebrews written to the Jewish people. All these things somehow were just an accident, assembled by people who had a purpose. Oh, we'll just because this is what we believe, we'll write a book and we'll just tell everybody it's God's word. One of the defining proofs that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and one of the defining proofs that the Bible is without error and infallible is the prophetic word that's contained within it. And this morning, just a handful of things to share with you on this regard. Notice how it goes on to say, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles. Who's Jesus ultimately going to be put to death by? Not the Jews, and they were the ones that had a problem with him. Amen? It was Caiaphas and Annas. They they put a plot together. We can't have this guy running around saying he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. It just cannot happen. It's blasphemy. So much so that the high priest rent his garments. He says, how dare you say that you're God? And he'll be mocked. 
and insulted and spit upon, that they would scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Hallelujah. This is not new news. There was a heavenly board meeting that took place in time past that we're not privy to. Jesus the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit together, all working in unison as God. Here's how this is going to go down, and here are the specifics of it. Not one, not two, but many, as we shall see momentarily. Now, I want you to notice, if there were any people on earth at that time who should have gotten what Jesus just said, wouldn't you think it'd be the disciples? Wouldn't you think it would be the guys who traveled with him, had watched miracle after miracle after miracle, had watched Jesus minister in every kind of situation, had done everything you could possibly imagine to be in the know about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But they understood none of these things. And here's why. Because spiritual things are spiritually appraised, and the carnal mind can't know them. If you're just simply trying to figure out facts, there's lots of facts for you to figure with. It takes faith to believe. It has always taken faith to believe. And it is only faith that can save. It's not a plethora of knowledge. It's not you understanding theology. It isn't you having an attachment for all things biblical. For without faith, your Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it is impossible to please God. There is now and always has been an element of faith necessary for us to come to a right relationship with God. It's not me presenting a convincing argument. It isn't me explaining to you why evolution is not correct as a worldview. It's not me explaining to you all of these prophetic things, which I will share with you in a moment. Though they're absolutely wonderful and they are edifying to the body of Christ, they alone cannot save you. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, Look, you guys are looking at your Bibles, and I'm paraphrasing. You're staring at the Scriptures because you think that if you just learn those, you can have eternal life. But that's not true. And Jesus went on to tell them why. For they testify of me. They're not just facts for you to learn. They're truth for you to know by faith. The saying was hidden from them, for they did not know the things which were spoken. And so the first thing we see here is that all of this was completely inevitable. These events were planned out, mapped out in advance, written well before Jesus was ever born. And people say, ah, that's just ridiculous. It's not true. And in fact, one of the greatest arguments against the Bible has been that in the past, that these 
truths contained in the Old Testament, prophetically speaking about the Messiah, which clearly point to Jesus Christ, were so accurate that they had to be written after the fact. That there was no way that these things could be that old. What were some of those things that were spoken about by the Old Testament prophets of the coming Messiah? Obviously, Jesus the Christ. How about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is going to happen in the next chapter? Zechariah 9.9 tells you that. How about the betrayal of Jesus? Psalm 41.9 tells you that. How about the cross and all of its horror and terrors? Our Psalm 22 does that. Isaiah 53 does that. How about his death and his burial and the fact that Sheol couldn't keep him? The 16th Psalm tells you that. How about his ascension back home to heaven? The 24th Psalm tells you that. How about his enthronement to glory? The 45th Psalm tells you that. How about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through him? Joel chapter 2 tells you that. How about joining the priestly line of Levi and the kingly line of Judah together in exactly one person? Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110 does that. Now, if I sit here this morning and I look at you and I say, well, that's pretty amazing. Well, I just gave you about a dozen pieces of information. Now imagine that there are 485 specific pieces of information about the Messiah's birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his birthplace, what will happen to him at the end of his life, that all of these things were spoken in the case of these writings this morning from the Psalms, 1,050 years B.C. And you go, wow, you know, somebody could have written those after the fact. Somebody could have just made that stuff up after the events already happened, put it down in a book. How do we know? Friends and family, those pieces of information that I just gave you if you took all of those, just that dozen, and you put them together and applied chance to them, just random events of a single person fulfilling those 12 things, you would come up to the possibility of 1 in 10 to the 27th power that one person living on this earth at any period of time could fulfill those. If you blow it out to 25 of the 485 prophecies in the Old Testament, it becomes completely mathematically impossible. It cannot happen. It's a number so large that there's not enough time in recorded history. If you gave the fact that the universe is supposedly 3.7 billion years old, there have not been enough people and enough time for one person to be born to fulfill all of those things. It cannot happen. That is one twentieth of the pieces of information. So multiply times 20. It's an impossibility. Now you say, and many have said, as the disciples said, we don't get it. We don't understand. We don't know. This is crazy. This is impossible. 
As Jesus added detail after detail after detail about what would happen to him, every single thing got more complex to the disciples. And it should get that way to you. Because when you look at your Bible, you should be going, Man, that's crazy! Zechariah, Isaiah, David, Daniel... Amos, Joel, all writing in a period of history that's roughly a thousand years long, beginning more than a thousand years before Jesus got on the earth. You're going, ah, easy answer, it was written after the fact. Whoops, not so fast. Until 1952, you could make that argument. Until 1952, you could have said somebody wrote it after the fact. But after a little Bedouin boy threw a rock into a cave at Qumran and busted open some clay pots containing 15,000 fragments of biblical passages, every single book of the Bible except for the book of Ruth, almost everyone, and we're talking about the Old Testament, of course, Every single book, except for the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, either partial or complete, was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All of them dated to at least 185 B.C. So the New Testament writers did not put forth a myth that these things would happen to Jesus we know that at least 200 years before he walked on the earth, that these words that we read this morning were on paper, because the 22nd Psalm was one of the Psalms that was in there. The book of Isaiah, not one copy, five complete copies of the book of Isaiah, over 100 pieces of prophetic information about the coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So from God's perspective, it was very definitely a foregone conclusion. And from your perspective, you can trust your Bible to be accurate. As they began assembling the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was not completed, by the way, until 2002. And by the time it was all done, they put all of these things together, and these things all of a sudden became indisputable facts that they came before Jesus ever got here. They can't be contested anymore. So the person that's a skeptic that says it's so accurate it was written after the fact now has to come to terms with the fact who wrote it beforehand. Who authored it in advance with that kind of accuracy that by the time Jesus actually comes to this earth, because if the Romans could have done anything to keep these things from happening, they would. If the Jews could have done anything to keep these things from happening, they would have. If those who hated the coming Christ would have known the outcome of those events attributed to Jesus riding into Jerusalem exactly as Zechariah said, 
on the foal of a donkey, they would have ripped Jesus off of that donkey. They would have forbade donkeys to be in Jerusalem at that time if they thought it was going to be true. And one by one, the believer's faith was increased and the skeptics were laid to waste. You still need faith to believe, folks. But your faith is very reasonable. And furthermore, your faith is the only faith, faith in Jesus Christ, that he is both King and Lord, Savior of all who believe, is the only faith that has that accuracy. It's not the Quran. I can tell you that emphatically. Because the temple that supposedly Muhammad fled to wasn't there when he supposedly fled to it. Our Savior's passage came, passion came from the fact that this was all the plan. There was no plan B. There was only plan A. And God made plan A happen. Point by point, detail by detail, Jesus Christ went to Jerusalem to die for me, for you. Thank you, Jesus. Notice his power now. Picking up in verse 35, And then it happened as he was coming near Jericho, as I told you, he's on the Jericho Road. The Jericho Road is a long ascent to Jerusalem. It winds through some very windy canyons, lots of caves in that region. It was a frequent place for robbers. It was also the home of the Levitical order of priests. Most of them lived there. It's only 18 miles from Jerusalem. It was also the place that the publicans lived because they didn't want to live in Jerusalem because their lives were in jeopardy. And so Jesus is heading up this road. He's going to pass through Jericho. And notice it actually says this. And so he says he's coming near Jericho. And a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Now we know from Mark's gospel his name is Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. And hearing a multitude passing by, notice it doesn't say seeing, it says hearing because he couldn't see. He was blind. Hearing a multitude of footsteps passing by. They were passing by. They were on their way through. They had not planned to stop. But such is the power of Christ that he sees all who cry out. Everyone who asks to him will be given an answer. He asked what it meant, and so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He used his messianic title. He cried out in faith. He couldn't even see Jesus. He had no idea whether it was actually true or false. It was his last time. Jesus was not going to pass through this town again. He said, look, I believe. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then those who went before him warned him that he should be quiet. Look, don't make a ruckus here. You know, come on, this is our prime begging spot right here. We don't want to draw any attention to it. We'll probably have more beggars next week. 
Kind of keep it on the down low. You guys kind of squeeze in over there off the shh, be quiet. And he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now remember the difference between mercy and grace. Very important here. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. This guy wasn't saying, hey, uh, you know, I got a bad deal in life. I was born with a congenital birth defect and I can't see. And it's about time somebody made it up to me. You know, there's no eye clinic here in Jericho that can do LASIK surgery. Come on. I deserve this. I've suffered long enough. No, what he said was the exact same thing that you and I have to come to terms with. God be merciful unto me, a sinner. As wretched as I am, please, dear God, do not give me what I've earned. Don't heap on me what I deserve. And in calling him the son of David, he is saying, you are Messiah. Because David had been dead for a thousand years. This was not a literal son of David. It was a title that everybody knew about the coming king of kings. Lord of lords. If you were a Jew, you knew that the title of the Messiah was the son of David. And so Jesus stood still and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, Emily of God, this is the question that all of us must ask one day. What do you want from me? What should I say? How do I respond? God forces no one to receive grace, receive mercy. To walk by faith. But he gives all opportunity. And he asked for each of you to make the exact same public profession. There's no secret Christians on this earth. There are people whose faith maybe are perhaps more visible than others. But if you've received him and you believe in him, you will proclaim him. And so we ask the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? And he said, Lord, Lord, Master, Son of David, Messiah. You realize what he's saying here. He's acknowledging that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Messiah. And Master, I believe you're God. Lord, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, didn't give him something to do, didn't give him a book to read, didn't give him a program to enter, didn't tell him to go see an ophthalmologist, didn't tell him to dunk himself, didn't tell him to do anything. Nothing. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. 
that not one of us could boast about coming to Jesus. Not the most right and righteous person who's ever lived. Not the most destitute, poor, deaf, dumb, blind, and sinful. None of us. We all come to Christ the same way. Amen? And he tells them how. Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And of course, that issue was not just the physical blindness, but the spiritual blindness. And this young man, blind from birth, cries out, Have mercy on me. And then he says, I know you are the Messiah, and I want you to be my Lord. Save me, because I can't save myself. You see, God hears the prayer of anyone who says, I can't save myself. God hears the prayer of those who will bow their knee now. Because your Bible says, your trustworthy, inerrant, infallible word of God says, that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's going to be a whole lot of people who will be doing that from hell. Because they will then realize absolutely unequivocally that Jesus was who he said he was. And that they did not believe. They did not exercise faith. And immediately... He received his sight and followed him. Notice he didn't stop at just receiving his sight. He did what Jesus said all must do. If you are my disciples, keep my commands. If you are my disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. If you desire to come after me, leave your father, your mother, leave the world behind and follow me. This guy acts on his faith. He's not just standing there in the middle of the road going, well, I don't know. You know, it's nice to see, but how many people disrespect what the Lord has done in their lives to the point that they will not follow? They want their fire insurance. They want Jesus as Savior, but don't talk to me about the Lord stuff. I want to be my own Lord. I want to do things my way. I know your word says that, but I don't want to do it. Can I tell you that your Bible doesn't teach that you can come to Christ without repenting? It doesn't teach it. Does your Bible say that you need to be perfect? Oh, no. But you need to get in the process of being perfected, that's for sure. You need to start letting go of stuff. You need to come to that place where you realize that you're not very good at running your own life. And that you need some help. And you want that help. And you're willing to do what that help tells you to do. That's a person who has the assurance that they really know Jesus. Everybody else... Your Bible says you're self-deceived. Notice, he glorified God. 
Did you know that the chief aim of man is to glorify God? That's actually why we're here to some degree. That at the end of our days, everything you do would glorify God. You can glorify God in the workplace. You can glorify God in your garden. You can glorify God at your school. You can glorify God in your marriage. You can glorify God as a parent. You can glorify God in your service. You can glorify God when you shop for groceries. You can glorify God in anything if your goal is to glorify God. And all the people, you want to see a witness? Look at this. When they saw it, they gave praise to God. One person whose life is turned around by faith and the people surrounding give praise to God. Can I ask you this morning, are you doing that? Is your life so turned around by God that when people see what you do and how you live your life, that they give praise to God. Man, I wish I was like that. I want that for me. So many Christians are undercover Christians. Apart from here, where we sing our praises, as we should, where we study His Word, as we should. Where we pray, as we should. There are many Christians, there are Christians in this church whom come Monday morning, no one would know. No one would know. No Bible in the car. No praise music on the radio. No acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord whatsoever. And I want to challenge you. Your goal on this earth is to glorify God, that people would see you glorify God, and that they would praise Him who is in heaven. That they would be drawn to that same one that you know already. As this journey begins, as Jesus climbs the hill to Jericho, and then up the valley into an inhospitable land that lies 3,800 feet below the city of Jerusalem. It's a long, steep climb. Desert. Looks a whole lot like the area here in Southern California around the Salton Sea or Death Valley, either one. Very barren. This one guy was a... Example, can you imagine what he was doing there in the crowd as Jesus ascended up to Jerusalem? I can see! He saw his first sunrise. He saw his first sunset. He noticed one of those rock hyraxes, those things that looked like a beaver with no tail. He actually got to look at an apple for the first time. Isn't that what happens to us when we come to Christ? All of a sudden we can see with spiritual eyes things that we never saw before. Sometimes things that need to change. We see the glories of heaven applied to our lives. 
we should be like this guy. Thank you, God, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free. The world should know this because they know us. The world should see this because they see us. I don't know how much time we have, folks, but it's become real evident to me in the last couple of months that it's not long, even if it seems long. What is life, as James said? Is it not but a vapor? It is here today and gone tomorrow. My brother Steve's in heaven. He's enjoying the glories with Jesus and hanging out with us. I don't know what they're doing. Building something, I'm sure that's what carpenters do. But I know this, we're still here. When people meet you, do they praise God? Because you praise God? Just a short while before, they had met the rich young ruler and a completely opposite result. Amen? Think about it. Is that not the choice set before all of us? Choose life. You, You see, that's what Jesus came for. And that's why he's left us here. This guy wanted to be saved. When Jesus said in John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that if you have seen me and yet do not believe, what profit is it of it to you? If you've seen and you don't believe. And he says in verse 31, or 37, excuse me, of that chapter, that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Whether you're a blind beggar, or whether you're a rich young ruler, whether you're the smartest guy on the planet, or whether there are toads that have more than you got. Whether you are the most wealthy person with all of the stuff that money can buy, or whether you have nothing. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. And it takes faith to do that. Not just knowledge. You have to cry out for mercy and know that you need it. You see, there are a lot of people that don't think they need mercy. They think they can make it on their own. Matter of fact, a lot of people go to church because they think they can earn it. Well, I'll just go. I'll clear up my week's worth of sin by going to church on Sunday. I used to do it. I remember I was 11, 12 years old. I figured no matter what I did during the week, if I went to church, I was good. Got another week's worth of God's grace. 
Let me tell you a secret. You either have God's grace or you don't have God's grace. You're either in line to receive his mercy or not. You are either saved or you are damned. And there is no in-between. You're in or out, saints or ain'ts. And that comes by faith. It's an essential. It's not an elective. James 5 says, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone sick? Pray over him. The prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise him up on that last day. And it says there in verse 16, the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And you know what? You can be a beggar and still be righteous in Christ. You can be a pauper and still be righteous in Christ. This young man simply did what all of us must do, and that's follow Jesus. As imperfect as we are at it, and let me end with this, none of us, while we're still in these mortal tents, these earthly bodies, are going to be perfect at following Jesus. Certainly not me. I'll make me the prime example of that. But all of us can still do what God's asked us to do by faith each day. You may stumble, you may fail, you may falter. But that's why you need grace. That's why you need mercy. And that's why you believe by faith. Because it's not of you. It is all of him given to you because of what Christ did on Calvary's cross. That, my friends, is the gospel. And the gospel saves. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray if there's anyone here this morning and they have never believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have never, like this blind beggar, cried out and said, Have mercy upon me. Lord, I pray that your grace would just come to them like a flood. Lord, that you'd convince and convict them of sin, of righteousness. Lord, of your plan all along to save as many as would believe on your name. And that there is an option, and that option's not good. We pray, God, that you would reach into each of our hearts. And Lord, would the things that we do and say, because we are children of faith, cause other people to praise you, other people to glorify you, other people to bless your name. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. All God's people said. Amen. Would you stand? You need prayer after service. I'll be up front. Love to pray with you.